Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living Life Aloud. I'm your host, Jason Wiggin. Hearing loss is the third most common chronic condition behind arthritis and heart disease, and it affects people of all ages. Nearly 16% of adults in the U.S. have a hearing loss. One in three over the age of 65 have a hearing loss. Now, taking into account these statistics and the importance of this loss of a sense, little is done about it. Think about the last time you were at the doctor. Were you screened? Was your hearing evaluated? Did they do anything maybe aside from even asking how how do you feel you hear just because it was on a checklist, right? An intake form. And unless the patient, the person doesn't start that conversation, It's one that's often not addressed. Now, it's also not something we see a lot in mainstream media. Yes, some folks have said that we started seeing it more in movies. We see hearing aids. We see a cochlear implant on a kid. We have and have had deaf individuals who were actors in various media, but on a daily level, right, with your own friends, family, network of individuals you interact with each day, it's not something that's discussed. It's not something the individual, maybe, who knows they have a difficulty hearing, says anything about. It's not something they really want to talk about. So, exposure, and I guess highlighting, or at least having that discussion that this is a societal concern, is important. Which brings me to today's guest, David Owen, author of Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. David has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since the early 90s. Before joining them, he was a contributing editor at the Atlantic Monthly. Prior to that, senior writer at Harper's. David is also a contributing editor for Gulf Digest and Popular Mechanics. He's author of more than a dozen books and dozens and dozens of articles over the years. In his latest book, Volume control, he argues that inaction with regards to hearing health care, hearing loss, brings with it a huge social cost. He demystifies the science of hearing while encouraging readers to get the treatment they need for hearing loss and protect the hearing they still have. He discusses hearing aid cost, stigma, psychological effects of not addressing that hearing loss, how it can affect you socially, personally, vocationally, friends, family, and all those around you. So with that, I bring you David Owen. David, 
I'm so happy to be here with you. I really appreciate you making time for us today. It's a great honor. Thank you. So I'd like to just get right into, again, you've had a world of experience as a as a writer, as a contributor through different periodicals and so forth, like the New Yorker and the Atlantic and Harper's. But what what brought you to addressing or to to a book about hearing healthcare, about hearing loss? I see that in the acknowledgments you'd mentioned it started as an article, right? But obviously blossomed right. into a 250-plus page book. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. What, uh, what, what got you in the interested, if you will, in sharing or really, you did a lot of the discovery, which we're going to go into a lot of that, but what brought you to hearing loss to addressing that? The, uh, the idea started with an editor at the New Yorker uh, who asked if I would be interested in writing about hearing loss. And uh, it was not a topic I'd thought about before, although I realized that I had uh, as probably just about everybody does. I had some experience with, uh, with hearing loss. My grandmother, uh, a century ago was taken duck hunting by a suitor in a rowboat on a lake near Austin, Texas, where she grew up. And, uh, he aimed his shotgun by resting it on her shoulder. And when he fired, uh, he not only missed the duck, but also severely uh, damaged her hearing, especially on that side. And so uh, all my memories of her, you know, include her hearing, her hearing aid, her difficulties hearing. I always had to shout uh, to be heard by her. She had a, uh, you know, a behind the hear hearing aid, but it was an early, uh, uh, she had to, you know, she was constantly adjusting the volume and it would uh, emit these horrible feedback squeals, which she couldn't necessarily hear. Uh, and then I had uh, some of my own in, on a different New Yorker assignment, uh, back in 2006, I spent a week in Beijing, and uh, at that time, the uh, the air was as bad as the air I've any place that I've ever been. I mean, I, there were times when I I literally could not see the hotel across the street from my hotel. Wow! Uh, they closed down freeways and schools were shut down, yeah. and I caught the worst cold I've ever had. Uh, and it got worse on the airplane ride home, and then you know it took a month to get rid of it, and when it finally went away. I noticed this ringing in my ears and uh, I uh, did what I usually do with health issues, which is to just completely ignore it uh, for, uh, for several months. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I went to my doctor and I said, uh, this ring in my ears. And he says, ah, tinnitus. Uh, doctors yeah. always say tinnitus. Uh, civilians tend to say tinnitus exactly. and uh, doctors have their, it's like a, a guild thing. They have their own pronunciations, angina <laughs> instead of angina. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. but he, uh, he, he, uh, tinnitus, as you know, is almost always associated uh, with hearing loss. And right. so he gave me a little hearing test. He hit, hit a tuning fork on his desk and held it up and told me to tell him when I could no longer hear it. Uh, and after a minute or two, uh, he leaned forward because he could no longer hear it. Uh, you know, we were both in our fifties then; we're both in our sixties now. So he had he he was facing the same kind of issues. That, yeah, uh, statistics every, say he had statistics say he had a degree of loss too. So, <laughs> yeah, most likely, most likely, and uh, he because I I perceived it, I felt that I perceived it more on one side than the other. He had me have an MRI uh, in because there's a particular kind of uh, benign tumor 
uh, that can uh, form on the auditory nerve. And if, right. even though it's a benign tumor, if you have it, you want to get rid of it because it can do all kinds of damage. And, um, right. So I saw it, got to see the inside of my head, but, um, but there was, there was no tumor. So it's, since then, uh, uh, you know, he said, basically, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do, do for it except learn to ignore it. And luckily, um, I have uh, the right personality type for that. You know, if he'd said, you know, you can get rid of it uh, if you lose 30 pounds, I would have, uh, I would have been upset not only cause I'd hurt my hearing, but also cause I knew I wouldn't ever lose the weight. So, <laughs> so I live with it. And it turns out that a really terrible thing you can do for tinnitus is to write about it because then you think about it all the time. But now that the, now that the book is out, um, I don't think about it as often as I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's, uh, I mean, again, you know, personal journey is, uh, uh, you know, it's going to bring you anyone, no matter what it is, interested in things. I, I recently started officiating soccer, and soccer's always mm-hmm. been a part of my life, if you will. My brother was the jock. He played soccer all through school and, and college and did a little bit after college. And my daughter, she's uh, going to be 18. She's always been involved in soccer and, and things like that so i knew about the game but once i start officiating it's like a whole nother level right so you understand yep. like you said with your grandmother you know that that hearing loss is is a concern it's something that the elder of the elderly have to deal with you know it's not something that we think about having to affect us mid-career anytime before we're you know off at shady pines um, so, but like, you know, like with the, with the officiating soccer, you know, it's just, you entrench yourself in that world. And as I was going through the book, you have done now, again, as a professional writer and, you know, the number of, of, of different media outlets that you've, uh, you've been involved with, you know, how to research, of course, take me a little bit through that process for you. And, and let me frame that better. So as someone looking for information, right? Uh, you know, looking to a, a starting point, right? Like you want to learn more. And again, your book, the volume control covers everything from basic hearing anatomy devices. Um, of course, tinnitus, um, the stigma, it's very comprehensive. And as, as an audiologist, as someone who, you know, has done graduate work and has a doctorate in audiology, um, boy, it's appreciated. And not just to say, wow, somebody actually, you know, aside from myself and those of us in clinical practice or research or whatever, think about this. It's, it really made me think, wow, it's out there. You know, I mean, it's there to be found and individuals like yourself are are ready and available to have these conversations. So, so again, to circle back, what was, how did you go about researching? And again, not as the writer per se, but I mean, where did you start looking for answers? I, you know, I just, uh, I just started looking around. One thing that I realized is that I didn't really even know what hearing is or what sound is. And uh, the, one, one of the most interesting things was was you know sort of uh teach getting myself to the point where i felt that i understood sound and you know i was not a science major in college i was an english major so i always figure that if uh you know if i can understand something like that then i can probably explain it to other people because it takes so much uh i need so much help from people who actually know what they're talking about that i eventually come around to where i can figure it out um 
in fact, it's I think sometimes it's a uh, it's an advantage as for a journalist to be an amateur in a subject because then you don't assume uh, that everybody understands, um, you know, the easy parts, the stuff that maybe got, even got you interested in the field, but now you, you're so far beyond it that you can't imagine what it was like not to know those things. It's 100 percent, yeah. That fascinated you at the outset, yeah. Uh, so uh, sound and hearing, those were interesting to me, and then I had I had lots of help from uh, from people who are uh, spending their lives working. Uh, working on this researchers and, and, uh, and audiologists and others. And, um, the, the, it was great. I, you know, and everybody I talked to would lead, would lead me to somebody else. And I'm lucky I live not too far away from Boston. So there's a, there's a lot of hearing people at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and at, uh, Harvard medical school. And they were incredibly helpful to me, uh, both while I was doing the research. And then later, once, uh, once I'd written a manuscript, uh, and I was able to show it to them, and they could say, "No, no, <laughs> you're, you know, you're completely wrong here." And they helped me, help me fix things. And they're, you're, because it's complicated, right. uh, and it's interesting too. Or, you know, even people who uh, are, you know, high-powered researchers in hearing, don't, don't, nobody has the whole story. So, you know, I would talk to a different researcher, and they say, "Well, no, we've actually since, since that time, we've actually figured out why." Uh, people lose their perfect pitch. Uh, we know why it is. Uh, you know, just things like that. There's there's a lot of people now. One reason there's so many people working on this is that is because of people who are my age. I'm 66, so I'm part of the baby boom generation, and there's so many of us, and we have so much buying power that when we need stuff, it tends to the the economy tends to provide it. And right now, people who are uh, my age, roughly, give or take, are beginning to have hearing problems. And so there's this huge, uh, huge effort in, in, on many different fronts to create better hearing, uh, hearing aids, better uh, other devices, uh, pharmaceutical treatments, um, uh, therapies. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, that COVID has been... Uh, has had an effect too. I, I talked to a woman who's very hard of hearing. She's in a reading group, a book group of people who have all lost significant amounts of hearing. Uh, they've always, they've always met in person. They had always met in person. And she said it was difficult to follow the conversation. Now they meet on zoom or, or with on a, on a, a different uh, meeting uh, app that has uh, instantaneous closed captioning as they speak. And she said, it's much more enjoyable now. Right. Because uh, you know everybody is everybody's captioned, and she said that you know when the pandemic ends, they may not go back to meeting in person because it's su- such an advantage to be able to to tell what ex- everybody is saying. Right, right, yeah. There, so there's a, there's a lot of, and I think that development of those uh, that capability has been accelerated by COVID, so that now you see uh, you know all kinds of uh, online and uh, television uh, that are where closed captioning is becoming much more a part of of, uh, uh, of, uh, lots of different technology that we deal with. And, you know, my wife and I, the, you know, the, we, neither of us wears hearing aids. We both use closed captioning on TV because then you, know, you can, you can hear right. what yeah. people with f- funny accents are saying. And it's, uh, think, gee, why didn't we always do this? So it's, um, well with, um, <clears throat> 
Downton Abbey and the onslaught of binging <laughs> episodes of Sherlock and, you know, folks with uh, whatever, you know, accent we have access to so much uh, content now that, uh, oh, definitely. And I, not just, not just in audiology and with patients and things like that, but I definitely preach, keep the captioning on. It's easier to listen. You watch TV to enjoy to relax, to understand it doesn't need to be cognitively challenging, okay, to someone with normal hearing or any degree of hearing loss. So, so no, that's, that definitely goes on the, after COVID, what do you think we should keep? <laughs> the memes, you know, yeah, right. oh, stay six feet away from me. Um, <laughs> you know, right. I don't need you that close. Uh, you know, I'm good with the takeout. <laughs> I'm good with food service, bringing me my food. And I don't have to wait, you know, in, 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 in the crazy loud olive garden for a table and things like that. So definitely captioning, <laughs> we're going captioning, yeah. we're going to keep that, you know, hopefully that gains some, some traction there. So, um, yeah, I think so. I, so I was extremely impressed by the, well, let's see. It's a better way to put that. A lot of the individuals, professionals uh, that you spoke with and that you referenced and, you know, had, had conversations with and information from in the book are to even audiologists or researchers. These are names in the field, right? Diane Van Tassel, mm -hmm. um, even Bradley Welling, who I, who is at uh, Harvard Medical Center now, used to be at the Ohio State University, the Ohio State uh, Wexner Medical Center. He was the chair there. So, you know, you, you see, I see a lot of uh, folks and, and their work has resonated with me and, and to see where they are now and how they continue, right, to, to like you said, address these, these issues and bring more value, I guess, right? Look for more ways to bring more value to hearing healthcare. And I keep saying hearing healthcare is important to hearing loss because again, you know, not to just focus on the negative, but the hearing healthcare aspect of it. But um, now you just mentioned, you said you do not wear hearing aids or your wife, but in the book, you talked about using earphones, which is a P PSAP, personal sound amplification product. Yeah, right. there you go. Okay, you got them in. Um, so that I was very not surprised because again, I I you know like to like to not just think that oh gosh, nothing can be like a hearing aid and no one can program this thing like you know an audiologist and things like that. The science of it. I think is the real value in audiology, the how, the why, the diagnosis of it, you know, and, and, and the device centric device specific existence is, is, is something that continues to challenge the field. Um, but something I'm personally glad to see the market is potentially expanding. Now, again, as we know, the, um, over-the-counter hearing aid act which was something put into a i can't remember off the top i had the separate bill that was passed back in 2017 the fda's um guidance and i guess release of that if you will was kind of pushed back due to covid i think you know originally it was supposed to happen in 2020 but you talked about bose and you talked about some of the manufacturers that do have are looking to have a presence in the field of hearing loss, of addressing hearing access, even if you will, however we want to put it. So 
tell me a little bit about your experience with these um, these amplifiers, these uh, earphones that right. you have. Um, right. I should say at the outset, I think they're terrific. Bose stopped making them. Uh, they were on the market for a couple of years, and they they just as uh, somebody, you know, I found out for somebody said, you know, they completely disappeared from the internet. And I talked to somebody at Bose, and I said, you know, gee, what happened? You know, yeah, we said we withdrew them from the market, uh, it, not because they had any technical problems with them. I suspect that the reason is that they just weren't they weren't selling enough. Uh, they're t- I find them terrific. I, I had emails from a couple of people uh, who, with uh, su- with significant hearing loss. Uh, one guy with Meniere's who'd lost quite a bit of hearing in both ears. He much preferred his earphones to his hearing aid, uh, and uh, was was sad that they that you know that they were no longer around. But I think it's you know, what everybody discovers when they get into the hearing field is that it's really complicated. Right. That a hearing aid is an incredibly sophisticated piece of technology. That you cannot uh, build one uh, a hearing aid size hearing aid with off-the-shelf technology. It's why all the the chips and all the you know the antennas and things like that are developed by the hearing aid companies. Right. And uh, the you know it's the I remember people always say, well, why is an Apple in hearing aids they've been saying it for years right and apple worked with starkey and they've they've done some hearing related uh stuff but what they discovered they discovered what everybody discovered which is this is incredibly hard partly it's difficult because of regulatory roadblocks that have always been in the way uh regulatory roadblocks that have been uh, you know, are basically the work of the hearing aid industry. It's very protective. It's like it, they've protected their turf, right? But also because the the technology is just you know you 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 know you're making something incredibly small. It runs on very low voltage, and you can hide it inside your ear, which is not a friendly environment for a piece of electronics at all. Right? And uh, no, not at all. It's yeah. really tough to do. Now, if you're if you're willing uh, to wear uh, something that you can see that you don't mind other people seeing. There, a lot of those difficulties go away. So, earphones have the same kind of. It's a. I should say it's a. It has a, a collar that goes around your neck, and it has two big earbuds like the size of acorns that are wired to the to the collar. Right. The collar has a big batter, big rechargeable battery in it. The the earphones are big enough so that they have some. The, each one has three speakers free microphones that they have directional microphones they have active noise canceling both inside and outside the ear it's it's crazy stuff but it's it would be very hard to do that uh tiny to make it invisible to you know candy corn size that you stuff into your ear and disappears right and so that that's a good segue into so the and something you address in here or you know is the stigma the stigma of yes Hearing loss, the stigma of wearing something on my ears. I mean, you yourself, you've got glasses on, you know, I am bilaterally cochlear implant uh, recipient. I've got processors on the back of my head. You know, you can see the little disc and, and you, of course, uh, talk about cochlear implants in your book as well. Outstanding. Just excellent description. And, 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 you know, uh, as far as what, what it's, um, application is for beyond hearing aids and that sort of thing so but the stigma through your research through your discussions i saw when you during your discussion with uh diane van tassel as far as you know that 
these things can be made. Again, a smartphone is not easy. If it was, I'd be making one in my garage, right? I mean, forget about what Steve Jobs and Wozniak did. Yeah, they made a computer in their garage, but that was in the 70s and, you know, it was the size of probably a locker, uh, a storage cabinet. So anyway, what do you think contributes to the stigma? And again, I say that because we're not talking about something that's just been around for 10 or 20 years and you get over it. I mean, I remember when people didn't like wearing those things you have, you know, earbuds or anything (laughs) around their neck or, or, and then every taxi driver in New York city still to this day has a big old earpiece in his ear because that's a Bluetooth for the phone, you know? So what, yeah, what, what goes into, or not even what goes into what's your experience been, or what have you maybe get some insight as to what drives the stigma? Because I personally, believe as do a lot if audiologists or folks in the field that they're honest with themselves we can talk about the cost of hearing aids we can talk about access you know accessibility medicare beneficiaries require a uh, referral from their pcp primary care physician or general physician anyway so but the stigma is is crushing right all those things are uh, all those all those are factors the, the cost, as you say, uh, the fact that you have to really train your brain to listen with hearing aids. Uh, you know, if you, when you get glasses, you put them on. If you couldn't see, if you had, you know, if you were uh, nearsighted before, you can have perfect vision. I remember when I got my first glasses in fifth grade, I put them on and I could see stuff that I, I didn't know that people could see. Hearing aids, you, you really have to stick with them. Uh, you have to, you know, your brain has to learn, especially with cochlear implants. I'm sure you, your brain was educated to uh make uh sense of what you were hearing right uh through your through your implants uh but also there is this you know for reasons that i'm not sure i completely understand there is this association uh, uh people associate hearing aids with decrepitude and the the thing that really brought it home for me there was a years ago charlie rose back when he was still on tv devoted an hour-long program to hearing loss. And uh, he, there was a, a, a group of people around the table, including a, a, uh, a researcher that I interviewed from uh, David Corey from Harvard Medical School. And uh, there was also a, a guy who'd won the, uh, uh, Eric Kandel, who'd won the Nobel Prize in Physics. Mm-hmm. And you could tell, you could see Kandel's hearing aids, uh, Rose also was wearing bilateral hearing aids. His were more invisible. But during this whole hour-long show about hearing loss and hearing aids, neither one of them ever mentioned that they had hearing aids. Uh, and I'm sure the reason was that they they were ashamed. You know, Rose would talk about his uh, heart problems, but uh, you know the 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 fact that he had trouble hearing. Uh, you know, even in this context, when that was all they were talking about, and there was a kid there who had. Uh, cochlear implants. There were people who were talking about the develop a, development of implants. People talking about hearing aids, and neither one of them ever made a peep. So I think that's what uh, that's the difficulty. The one I think hopeful sign is just what you say. You walk down the street, every young person you see has something sticking out of his ears. Right. You know, kids they've got their AirPods or they have headphones, big headphones on, or they're you know they're uh, they they there isn't that same kind of. Uh, stigma right necessarily or at least it's something that you could build on now at the same time they're probably listening to music much louder than they should and they're sort of creating the problem that they will then be able to solve uh with a device but um uh, there is at least i think it's not 
you know, I, I can walk down the street wearing, uh, wearing something as big as my earphones and nobody, people would just assume that I was listening to music or listening to a, a podcast right. or something. Right. And then, you know, and so, uh, you know, I want our listeners to know too, that the FDA and well, actually OSHA and different uh, regulatory agencies do require or do limit the output okay on hearing on headphones on any listening devices okay now we're not talking about hearing aids different different animal there but so like in android uh and iphone actually i think android might have had it first but as far as you try to turn up the volume a little too much and you get a box pop up a window pops up that says uh you may be approaching dangerous <laughs> listening levels you know and of course they go past it and go yeah whatever but right. they are at least there are at least regulations for that um you know and then but going back to you know you're saying walking down the street and a lot of folks got things hanging on their ears and whatnot and uh, no matter what they say airpods where you got you know it looks like little antenna hanging down in your earlobes you know i mean they're not the most well in my opinion, maybe couldn't be the most stylish, but ah, as we know, in everything, style changes, you know? I mean, my gosh, my, my, my daughter's wearing high-waisted jeans again. I thought they left in the 80s, but, <laughs> right? Um, you know, do you think that, that maybe a design? And, and, and because if we look back, anybody that's ever seen a hearing aid online, Aside from the size, meaning the body of it may be slimmer, maybe, you know, it's like looking at a, a, a Chevy Caprice in the early 80s and looking at the Caprices in the 90s around 2000. You know, they get more streamlined, a little rounder. They round the, you know, the bumpers and, and, and all that sort of thing. And that's kind of what hearing aids have done. You know, they, they've, they've maybe a little bit smaller, but you still got this chunk of something behind the ear. You still got a wire or tube going here. You still got, you know, and, and, and again, and I'm not, trust me, I realize the uh, discretion that has been, you know, that manufacturers have stayed aware of as far as we want it to be smaller. We want it to be less obvious and so forth but it's still the same kind of design right it's like if we were driving around and just model t fords that had rounded bumpers and less squared off grills you know uh, do you think that there's a room for design changes or anyone you spoke to that thought maybe that uh, you know a, a fashionable if you will or just some sort of design change may be something that could help address that i think it, i think it could and there are the and it's and it's very true what the behind behind the ear hearing aid hearing aids you know there's still a there's still a pain in the ass if you have glasses yeah. uh you have to you have to deal with the glasses people have discovered that they're a pain in the ass with face masks so you know i have a friend 100%. who big time who when he took off his face mask his hearing aid came out he didn't notice it until the battery was down, so he couldn't find it with his "Find My Hearing Aid" app. And yep. he, luckily, it was still covered by insurance. But it's, you know, I I've worn them uh, when I got when I got hearing aids when I went to visit Starkey, and I wore them for a while, mostly just to, to see what it was like. And I wore them to to play golf one day, and that was my, you know, I had a hat that they, you know, I had to keep track. I had to keep careful track of it. So there's definitely 
something about the design that uh, that could be improved. And the difficulty there probably is that you know it would be easy to solve if you didn't care if, if people saw it. If you have to hide it behind your ear, then it's right. more difficult. Um, uh, same with the the ones that are the tiny, tiny, tiny ones that you just you know stick mm-hmm. all the way into your ear and to- and really can't see. And when I, the first time I saw one of those, I thought, my God, how do you get it out once you've got it in? Uh, but um, exactly, the, they are the, and, and they're not the most comfortable. Um, no, they do not have good power. There's only no. a, a handful, if that, maybe one or two models that now are rechargeable. Um, they do have an option for one that stays in um, for up to a month, maybe up to three months, and then is changed. You have like a, I don't want to say a prescription, but similar to that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, oh gosh, what's the contacts? Not one, not, not you know, the the contacts that you leave in and disposable. Right, you wear overnight. Away. Yeah. So, and, and, and I understand, and I think once folks, you know, um, are, are, are told or ask the behind the ear. That's the best way that manufacturers can maintain the power. You need a decent sized battery. Now right. it's not the batteries that are the size of a quarter, you know, from the seventies. Um, sure. but you still need the battery. And actually in the past few years, maybe past five years, we've seen them get a little bit bigger because the rechargeable lithium ion cells. So they want rechargeable. I say they, but say, and this, hopefully there's market, um, you know, surveys going out to see what consumers and what professionals, uh, you know, want or some of the things, their wish list of, of new technologies and new designs and that sort of thing. And so rechargeable is big. And now, I mean, they're noticeably bigger. It's not like yep. you're wearing the big beige bananas from the 1980s, but you definitely <laughs> see a little bit of size because that lithium ion cell, um, you know, is now uh, a part of it. So, so yeah, I mean, and as even previously, or I shouldn't say that, but even before you were as knowledgeable currently after your research for this book and articles and so forth. How did you feel about hearing loss? If you, you know, again, not so much a family member with age, but I mean, you know, or if you saw someone walking around with hearing aids on. Yeah. I think I felt the same, uh, resistance. You know, there's, there's a reason that people, I had a friend who, after reading my book, he's in his late sixties. After reading my book, he went to his, uh, audiologist finally, and said, I think I had some hearing loss and he was fitted for hearing aids. And he said, you know, I, I noticed this uh, six years ago. I'm sorry it took me so long to come in. And the audiologist said, you're not late. You're early. Most people wait 10 years to come in. And, you know, it was the, yeah. it was, he didn't want to, he didn't want to have them. So, uh, so that's definitely true. I think, you know, they're all the, the size is a, uh, somebody that I taught, one of the people I talked to said, hearing aids have been optimized for invisibility. They've been optimized for size rather than for performance. And so I think one of the, uh, until hearing loss becomes fairly severe, if you put a hearing aid in, you, it just sounds wrong. Uh, it sounds different. Music doesn't sound the same. It's, uh, and so you, you can teach your brain to, 
to to accommodate that, but it takes some time. Even with hearing aids, the best hearing aids in the world are not going to do you anything on a Friday night at seven o'clock while you're waiting for that table in the restaurant or you're sitting in the bar area waiting to be seated. It's so noisy <laughs> and so loud, you know. So that's um, you know, it's it's not all about the device. Again, it's it's really about it's about the education. It's about the individual realizing what they can do to help themselves. Yes, are hearing aids a piece of that? Sure. Are they everything? In no way. No, the, the head of audiology at Mass Ioneer, uh told me that one of the things he likes likes about devices like that, the simple device, is that it's a way to say, now, you know, see what you think about this. Uh, here, it's, it's free from the hospital. If you like the way it helps you, maybe we'll talk about Sure. You know, a step beyond. And so it's not like, a you know, you're not a commitment to $7,000. It's you know, 80 bucks. Uh, and you go, oh, you know, I now I can <laughs> now sure. I can hear my grandchildren on Zoom. Sure. Maybe I should look at something else. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, and I, it, what you were saying about, you know, communication, even uh, among people who can hear that. One of the things that I was interested to learn, and I learned it at Starkey from a researcher there at the hearing aid manufacturer, is that even people who have perfect hearing get as much as 20% of their comprehension from unconscious lip reading. 100%. And so, and I've noticed that myself. I'll say something to my wife. If she's in another room, her, her back's to me, and what? And, and then, well, I have, you know, if we're looking at each other, it's fine. Also, the importance of context. And so when I, at Mass Ioneer, I went to, I went with a woman to her first checkup after her uh, implant had been activated. And uh, she was, she had a hearing, a strong hearing aid in one ear and implant on the other side. And she was given the uh, word test. And I was, I was amazed at how few of the whole words she identified. Right. Uh, The, and you're given in that test, you're given credit for phonemes. So she would, you know, if there were three phonemes in a word and she got two of them, it went down as a, you know, two thirds recognition. So you could, you could conceivably get more than 50% without actually correctly identifying any single word. And yet before that test, she and I had had a conversation in which I never would have guessed that she had a hearing issue just as with you. Right. We, in, in, but she had spent years really learning uh, to pay attention to people who were speaking to her, to the, the sort of laser focus, uh, and uh, it's huge. So uh, these are all things that we can, uh, we can do. I have a friend who's a researcher at IBM, and he works on word recognition. He helped to create the voice of Watson. Oh. He said even, even a computer uh, gets a lot of meaning from context. So if you give a, com- a computer voice recognition program isolated words, like in that hearing test, just random random words, it will have much more trouble than if you were speaking complete sentences to it. And the reason is that the computer does something like what your brain does. Every word it hears, it narrows the possibilities for what the next word might be. It can right. eliminate possibilities. And it does it does much better. And one of the things that the head of audiology said is you can, if you have kids with hearing difficulties in a classroom, you can hugely help them by just 
kind of giving them some contextual clues. Like maybe you give them a vocabulary list the day before you give them an outline of what the class is going to be about. Cause now you can latch on to what you can hear and fill in uh, what you can't. And it's, uh, you know, he gave, he, sh- he played some uh, audio recordings for me. You know, he said, he said, I, he said, it's been proven scientifically that you cannot, uh, that you did not hear comprehend anything from this. It just sounded like static. Yeah. And then he gave me one word from it and I could hear it. Or he gave me, you know, he played it unscrambled and then played it scrambled again. And now I could hear it perfectly. So, you know, there's, so it's not, as you say, it's not just devices. It's a kind of educating yourself, uh, opening yourself up to the idea of how my, you know, I'm not, my under my hearing, my, understanding my comprehension is, is is a package it's got all these elements and i'm gonna make them work together right yes a ton of information from like you said context nonverbal cues from the lip reading you know speech reading is is now it's you know more commonly called um 100 and the redundancy in the signal and i i say that meaning our brain we hear with two ears and so the brain uses the information it gets from both ears, okay, for localization, but also for understanding, just like that test you were talking about or, or the the sample that was just static, garbled, but give you one word of context and you kind of key in. That's how we understand a background noise. You know, we mm-hmm. can key in on a voice. That's how you can hear your friend, wife, partner, whatever, across the, the room at that cocktail party or over waiting for that table. You know, you can focus in on that stuff, so... So something I want to change gears on here just a little bit, because um, as I was looking through the articles that you had done right around the time of the book and, and um, that, that came out, I think, in November so of 2019, but what you were talking about in New York City, and this isn't to focus on New York City, but just as far as how we're missing out, okay, what tell me, and, and what, I, what I want to just discuss a little bit here is what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong, I guess? <laughs> and I mean that in general, as far as addressing, um, you know, a, a need, right, that you see in the schools with children, of course, and in, in adults and so forth. Um, what? Tell me a little bit about that. What did you uh, find out? What were you, what were you talking about? Uh, the I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which article you're referring to. Maybe you're referring to testing in, uh, in yes, the city. Yes, it was. It was the testing yeah. in New York City and our testing failure. Yeah, correct. New York City uh, stopped testing. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but they stopped doing the the amount of testing that they had had once been doing of uh, elementary school kids and older. And uh, the uh, the thinking was, you know, if after birth, if they have a hearing problem, it's most likely earwax or uh, or they've got a cold, and you know, it's a temporary condition. Blah blah blah. We'll save this money by not doing it. Uh, but it's uh, incredibly short-sighted, and it's in violate. You know, it's contrary to the recommendation of all the health authorities in the state and the rules in the state. And the the there are so many examples of kids who uh, test perfectly at birth; their hearing is fine when they're given the little uh, 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 hearing test in the in the in the birth room. Uh, but then have uh, hearing problems later that are misdi- that are missed or misdiagnosed. I tell you, the woman who was the head of a uh, uh, of a nonprofit hearing organization had a daughter who was 
diagnosed multiple times as severely it was with severe autism when in fact what she had was she couldn't hear and she had a sort of oddly shaped ear canal wow. she'd had uh, repeated uh ear infections and there was scarring inside her ears and she could she just couldn't hear and when that finally when that was finally caught she had surgery and she, and she's fine her hearing is is not perfect, but she she at the time that I talked to her, she was in school without hearing aids and was and was doing fine. But that happens so often, and I think especially, uh, I was talking to people at the American School for the Deaf, and autism has become kind of the go-to diagnosis uh, for all kinds of for a whole range of right. problems yeah. that have don't necessarily have anything to do with autism. And the reason is that you can get funding if you uh, for an autism diagnosis, and so. The, the they're just there's there's they're tragedies of kids who have correctable hearing problems uh middle ear problems ear infection problems uh, that aren't caught because people aren't people aren't looking for them even even their pediatricians uh so that you know the recommendation was that the school should be it's so much less ex- if you just think about it in terms of cost it's so much less expensive for a school to do simple hearing tests as frequently as they're supposed to rather than to end up in the position where you have specialists, you, you know, you have a kid who can't hear. And so they've got a, somebody taking notes for them, somebody who's interpreting for them. You have, you know, they're, they're in special classes. It's cheaper to test kids and, and yeah. treat what can be treated and help them help them when it can. No, you're right. Um, and there's always been services of rehabilitation act, 1974, the 504 plan that, you know, requires special services with those with certain needs. And then 1990, the ADA, we have the idea, the uh, individuals with disabilities education act where the children would put on an IEP plan. And it's not just hearing related, you know, but to go through that, to, the administration costs, if you will, and the time for the professionals and all that, I would imagine far is far greater than getting them oh, screened yeah. during lunch on a Friday when they're in first, third, and seventh grades. Right. It takes no time, costs nothing, basically costs nothing. And you catch a kid, you know, well, maybe it is ear infections, but if they're having hearing problems related to ear infections, their teachers should know about it. Right. Even if it's only, you know, for a week. The teacher should know, you know, this this child is move them to the front of the class, you know, give them some clues uh, because they're going to have trouble this week. And um, so anyway, that's that's a, a tragedy. There was a, something else that I, I, that it happens to be New York related. I wrote a second article about noise pollution, that's about sound exactly, pollution. Yep. That was my and, next uh, uh, follow up. <laughs> uh, people treat, treat sound and noise as. Uh, synonyms and so but they're really sound is you can measure with a device noise is completely subjective you know uh, the the classic example is the faucet dripping at the end of the hallway you might not even be able to pick it up on a on a sound level meter but it could keep you know it could drive you crazy it could keep you awake all night and there when my wife and i moved to uh new york city right after we got married and there was a lot of there was there was a sound problem new york is loud Mm -hmm. you know you always know when you're talking to somebody on the phone in new york because there's sirens in the background the subway's loud i mean there are all these things that are at levels that can actually cause the uh over sufficient exposure they can actually cause hearing loss but there's also there's just a lot of noise there's just you know there's just sound all the time nuisance sound that's when people talk uh, and, about moving out of the city, they need to get 
a, 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 a mask or they get a recording of city sounds to keep in their bedroom, yeah, right? That's right. I lived, I lived upstate <laughs> New York for a little bit, and this neighbor had moved out of Queens and was living up north of Goshen, uh, New York area, and he had to sleep. He was a police officer, so he, you know, was able to take the train down. And he had to have a recording of city sounds because he lived, you know, I don't know, on a four, you know, on a flat or something to sleep at night because it was too quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's very funny. Yeah. Uh, but it's also the the uh, there's a there was an example from back from back in the seventies. There's a school, a public school, uh, up in uh, way northern Manhattan in the uh, area called Inwood. And it was right near uh, some railroad tracks, a, a couple hundred uh, feet or hundred yards from uh, railroad tracks. And tr- like every few minutes, uh, was a, a train would go by and the teacher in classrooms on that side of the building would have to stop, stop their, what they were doing yeah. uh, until the train was gone. And then they'd have to get the attention of the kids again. And, and it happened over and over and over again, you know, every few minutes all through the day. And uh, eventually it's a, it's a, it's a long, interesting story, but eventually a, a researcher was able to demonstrate that kids in classrooms on that side of the building, on the railroad side of the building were a full year behind kids Whoa. on the other side of the building in, in their reading, uh, in their reading ability. And the fix was pretty simple. You know, they, they, uh, New York city in the seventies installed rubber, uh, pads between the tracks and the ties on the on the train lines, which oh, wow. brought the sound down. Yeah. The school put acoustic tiles in the ceiling. They closed the windows. They did. They they took steps, and it, and the difference went away. That one year difference went away. Yeah. So the I went to uh, in working on that article. I went to to France and to a, a a nonprofit there that's studying the effects of noise on residents of uh, Greater Paris, and they'd established using uh, data from the world health organization and from their own uh, studies, their own devices that just, you know, people who lived along, uh, basically along transportation corridors, you live next to a highway, you live next to a, a train line, mm-hmm. you live under a flight path. Their, their life expectancy, they lost as, I think it was as, like as much as three years of quality life to just disturbances from sound. And it mm-hmm. showed up in, it showed up in things like, you know, diabetes, uh, heart disease, high blood pressure, low birth weight, and then also, you know, the consequences of not being able to sleep or of not being able to pay attention at work. These are all health consequences that come from sound that's far below uh, anybody's threshold of right. what could actually damage your hearing. They're just, you know, driving you crazy. Right. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. Um so what in your opinion then what can be done what can be done i guess on two fronts what can be done to make the public more aware of everything you've just talked about um health issues the cognitive uh you know psychological um challenges it causes the you know the, the educational gaps the i mean you can go on and on the work performance the efficiency the productivity you know there's there's cost you know associated with any kind of deficit caused by hearing loss or 
communication issues, right? Uh, unclear communication. So I guess what can be done to improve people's awareness or attention to the fact that quality communication and efficient hearing is important. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you know, cause we, <laughs> we, we, there are so many things we ignore that, that, you know, would be better if we didn't. Uh, and sound is especially tough uh, because it, for some reason um, it's so much a part of our, our world. Even when we find it annoying, it's, it, you know, it's hard to do anything about it. It's hard to regulate. You know, you, there are, uh, New York City, like many municipalities, has uh, has sound regulations, sound level regulations, but it's it's really tough. And one of the reasons is that noise sound difference. You can be bothered uh, to the point of you know ill health by a sound that comes nowhere near any th- any decibel threshold that anyone would uh, could right. conceivably put into True. a law. True. Uh, and then at the other end, you know, there are sounds that are that meet the OSHA and NIOSH. Uh, you know, are below the OSHA NIOSH thresholds, but even OSHA knows that those are not sufficient to protect everybody's hearing. And the new research, more recent research, is showing that probably people uh, are damaging their hearing at levels far below those thresholds. So even at even at decibel levels uh, far below the OSHA thresholds, uh, there you know people can be doing permanent damage to their hearing, and that includes. You know, uh, toys that are sold to children, you no, know, including headphones. Right. That even if they meet the guidelines, uh, the guidelines aren't sufficient necessarily to protect them. So the what I now what I in my own life what I do the uh, I I'm much better about I about uh, I have uh, I have uh, earplugs all over the place. I have some on my um, on my keychain. I have some on my desk. Right. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I, you know, I, the, I have, uh, uh my noise canceling, uh, headphones. I, at night I sleep with it. It's a different pro most product called sleep buds where you, you know, it plays a masking noise, gotcha. which I play very quiet, but it's, it's a, it's a sound, uh, but it's a steady sound and it, and it, and I can, and I, it helps me sleep, sleep right. better. Yeah. So there, I was, there are these sort of. I was very interested and very, I guess, surprised that you had and and that anyone would have such a great experience with like the magi- the musician earplugs that the oh, uh-huh. theater you had better enjoyment of the movie, <laughs> yeah. and I thought, right. wow, this is something you know if you could promise that normal hearing hearing impaired right there was so many normal hearing individuals go to a movie it's like oh it was so loud i couldn't understand the dialogue and same thing at a rock concert well maybe not rock concert per se but like at a ball game right you go to a ball game and of course football and hockey games are going to be a little louder than you know than a baseball game but to be able to have better enjoyment and to understand the person sitting next to you while you can still be immersed in that sound environment of the ballpark, the crack of the bat, the crowd, you know. Um, yeah, go ahead. Tell me a little bit more about that because you had a great experience and I was very interested when I was reading it. Yeah, no, it was at the movie Dunkirk, which is really loud. I mean, it shakes the seats and I had, right. uh, you know, all these explosions and I had my earphones on. So I turned on before the movie started, I turned them up and you could control them with my phone. So I got, I could hear what everybody in the theater was saying. It was kind of creepy. And then when the movie started, I turned it way down so that I could still hear, uh, I could still hear dialogue, but it, I, it wasn't painful. 
And my wife, uh, you know, at one point in the movie, I was watching the movie and I thought, I don't know if this is really doing anything. And I took out one of the ear, ear like, wow. Oh my God, it's doing this. Wow. <laughs> uh, so the, um, so it does, it makes it, it makes a big difference. The, uh, there's so many, you know, I, I, years ago I took a, uh, uh, it was a, it was a woodworking course and we had ra- routers, which are these super powerful, really loud, high speed uh, right. cutting tools. Yeah. And, uh, it was a class in that. And the whole first half hour of the class was you don't even set foot in your workshop without your eye protection, your ear protection over, you know, pounding it in. You don't even go near these tools without they're really loud. It'll hurt blood. And then he's after half an hour of that, he got to the demonstration and he didn't put on his, no. he didn't put on his, his eye protection or his hearing protection. Uh, none of, we all left our, you had to get into the class. You had to have hearing protection and eye protection. We left it all on our desks and we went up and we gathered around. And we were all looking like that. So it's, oh, gosh. I think people will sometimes, uh, you know, they sort of, you know, you kind of tip your hat to it. You know, uh, it's, it's symbolic. You symbolically embrace these protections, but sure. then when you actually do stuff, I mean, my when I think back in my adolescence, I'm amazed that I can hear anything at all because my friends and I, you know, we we always sat right in front of the speakers at rock concerts. I had these big JBL speakers that I tipped over my, I would lie on the floor in my bedroom and tip the speakers over my head <laughs> so I could blast them into my head. Yeah. I had, you know, I had jobs mowing lawns. I never wore hearing protection. We shot, uh, we shot rifles at camp. No hint ever that you might, you know, be, be hurting your hearing. Right. Uh, and so the, uh, as I think back, I'm amazed not that, that I have tinnitus, but that I can hear anything you know, whatsoever. Yeah. And you had talked about in the book as well, uh, just like you said, in the room with the speakers, um, you know, through different generations, that experience has been a little different, you know, as we got better with car audio, it really kicked off or took off in the late eighties, nineties. And you got the sound systems in the trunks of the cars and the subwoofers, right, and, right. right. And you got all that. And so, and and you even talked about recreationally and talk about having fun as a kid, right? You're running around um, with, the, with the firecrackers and shooting right. bottle rockets off each other. And you had the M80 go off in the car and the cherry bomb yeah. go off. And, you know, and it, again, we can all pretty much, especially, you know, because this film is now a modern day classic the christmas story and you'll shoot your eye out you know he's not getting the red rider bb gun because you'll shoot your eye out that phrase did not shock anyone because everyone has been told that whether it's the bb gun you're with the firecrackers you're going to blow off your fingers not you're going to cause a single-sided deafness situation not you're going to affect your hearing it's Oh no, you're going to set something on fire or you're going to blow your fingers off. You're going to shoot your eye out, you know? And so I guess that, that, that's something too, that does surprise me. And is something I really, it, it, it's curious. It's confounding. Um, you know, we have guidance from childhood, from our earliest experiences and memories about, brushing your teeth you don't want to be like mr Yuckmouth. you want to brush your teeth twice a day you don't want to shoot your eye out you don't want to stare into the sun or else you'll go blind um you know nobody says i mean really nobody says hey you know don't uh 
whatever. Yeah, don't don't play a firecracker. She'll affect your hearing. Or don't uh, you know sit so close to the speaker, you're gonna go deaf. I mean, it's not. I guess a part of the fabric, the cultural fabric, right, of our society about protecting that one of five critical senses. You know, yeah. um. So I guess that is 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 something that I'm interested. You know. Do you have any thoughts on that about how culturally that could be changed? And again, as you've seen, you know, as you said, as far as generationally over the years, things that are driven, again, the consumer piece and the needs of, of you know, the baby boom generation or whatever generation we talk about. But that's insofar. I think Gen, I think the millennials, Gen Z might have surpassed the size of the boomers, but they're still if not the number one, one of the biggest generations. And they do drive so much of our marketing of the consumer need and what, you know, companies put out. Basically, if the boomers want it, they get it, these large demographics. But what do you think anything could be done to change that cultural mentality about hearing? I think there's, I think you see some things you see, for example, when you see, uh, rock stars taking their kids to concerts. The kids will always have headphones on now, uh, protective headphones. And, you know, because there are a lot of deaf rock stars uh, out there of mm-hmm. my generation and older. It would mm-hmm. be very unusual not to have severe hearing loss if you're one of those guys. And so, uh, you, you know, you see now, uh, when you see musicians performing now, they almost always have something in their ears. Right. Uh, usually they're, monitors they're listening to themselves their own instrument and they aren't necessarily listening to it quietly so it's possible that they're damaging themselves but i think musicians are much more aware that they need to take care of their hearing and right. so uh and so you you see that one one thing that's astonished me is the military that you know the the number one and two number one and number two uh causes of service related health problems in right. American veterans are tinnitus and hearing loss. They're, they're, you, know, you, you think of the life of a, of a soldier. It's, it's stuff exploding at mm-hmm. close range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the effects of that, the danger of that, has been known for literally for centuries. And yet it's really only just now that real protections are being uh, implemented in the right. military. There have been some, you know, efforts. There's a big lawsuit going on now over uh, some, some earplugs yep. that were supposedly protective that, that both the Pentagon and the manufacturer knew were not effective if mm-hmm. they were, you know, and you have, if you go on any veterans Reddit or uh, any uh, discussion group, you see really justifiably angry uh, veterans about, damage that they did to their hearing as a result of, of their service and then of the difficulty they have uh, getting help from the veterans administration now that they're now that they're out uh, the you know what the there's always with the same is true with hunters there's always this tension between you know they know this is loud I should be protecting my hearing at the same time I need to be able to hear what's going on around me I need my right. situational awareness well now there's electronic stuff that you can you can have both you can have uh, you can have uh, hear, ear devices that uh, essentially instantaneously shut down in the sound of an explosion and yet at the same time can make it easier to hear uh, quiet sounds going right. on around you and and they're starting to be uh, you know 
used uh, to be issued and used. But there are difficulties there too, because you know you have to recharge them, which is hard to do in the field. Uh, you have to you have to persuade uh, people in charge of soldiers that it makes sense to you know that it's not they're not sure. being softies if they're you know wearing ear protection. Well, in life and, or death situations, you know, I mean, if if the unit is got priorities, you know, if they feel right. that their judgment is going to be affected by uh, wearing right. that protection, um, justifiably so. It's a, it's kind of a catch-22. It is, and they have all kinds. They carry so much crap. Anyway, I mean, there's huge amounts of stuff, and more and more of it is electronic, and so you have all these, you know, just one more thing. Right. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps has started putting uh, uh, silencers on, on weapons so that, you know, not just to protect the hearing of the people firing them, but also to facilitate communication among yeah. uh, Marines who are, you know, engaged in a firefight. If your weapons are quieter, you can hear what the commander is saying. And this is the sa- same thing is true with, with hunters. Yes, if you have uh, something in your ears, you won't be able to hear as well. But if you don't put something in your ears, you will eventually not be able to hear anything at all. And so, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's, yeah. you're, not help- you're not helping yourself. Yeah. I mean, the ideal would be to stop shooting it stop shooting at people but um you know you mentioned earlier you mentioned uh football games and one of the interesting uh things that we've learned from the pandemic is watching uh football games played without people in the stands and you know there were my i'm from kansas city the the chiefs and the seattle they're two two teams famous for having fans who create an insane oh, sure. level oh, of yeah. noise yeah. really at the, at a sustained level that can damage the hearing of people in those stadiums yeah. and how interesting it is to watch a football game on TV where you can hear what the quarterback is saying. Yeah. You, know, you can hear, and it's really interesting. It, you couldn't hear it before because you know, everything there's just this overwhelming. Um, yeah. It's so, eerie. It's eerie. I, uh, I don't know if that'll, that may not carry, that may not carry on after the pandemic, but I found it to be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, that's true. And that's, that's, you know, it's, I was reading about the uh, musicians earplugs just to give it the name, but you know, these filtering earplugs, which is what they are. They have little bandpass filters where, like you said, they'll, um, if they're electronic, of course, they're going to basically squash those impact sounds. And, um, you know, they have ones that are not electronic and that the filter themselves is just an acoustic filter where lower, frequency sounds allowed to come in or lower frequency sounds are blocked, if you will. And the emphasis just on the size of the filter and the acoustics, um, you know, only allow certain frequencies to resonate um, better and kind of attenuate the others. So, yeah, that was something that I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's really something that to, to have a product that says you're going to hear better not to market it on the hearing loss, but to say, you put these on in theaters and I don't care if it's live theater, if it's a movie theater, uh, you know, in, in sporting events, um, in conferences, you know, in conference halls where you're, you know, in between breakout sessions for professionals, things like that, that you are actually going to be able to communicate better. And I guess maybe a focus on increasing the efficiency and having better communication could lead to a greater awareness on the effects and the impact of hearing loss, you know? Yeah, I think it could. And you see in theaters, uh, you know, friends of mine who, 
you know, the th- theaters are increasingly looped so that you can go to a show and you can, uh, you know, some hearing aids will automatically uh, right. connect to the system. So they're getting audio directly from the stage Correct. rather than the, all the ambient sound. Right. I have a friend with hearing aids who has, the, he has T coils in the hearing aids, but he prefers the headphones because the, the connection is better. The, the fidelity is better. Right. Uh, and it's like, you know, the uh, it's like when uh, like watching uh, TV with the closed captioning, when, when you can hear everything mm-hmm. or what my wife that you, that, um, uh, IMAX and, and some, and, and it's, it's been on TV too, where you go, you see the Royal Shakespeare company performing, you know, Romeo and Juliet. Right. And it's a live performance on a stage, but you, everybody's, you can hear everything perfectly because you're on, it's on a screen, it's in a theater and it's such a different, you know, it's such an improved experience yeah. when you can hear what everybody is saying and they can project without, you know, the sort of old fashioned, uh, you know, shouting, uh, uh, live play, live drama kind of over emphasis when they can speak the way people do on TV. It's a very different, it's a very different experience. 100%. So 100%. I think they're, these are, these are kind of technological. They're kind they're all, they're sort of, they're really technological improvements that are outside the realm of uh, hearing protection or hearing restoration, but they, but they, I think they do what you say. They uh, they help prepare people psychologically for the idea that we you could make your hearing exp- experience better. Uh, I think they're now also there's among the the many people who are you know I think that I think that the hearing aid the the peace apps the hearing aid uh, you know the, the revolution that's supposedly coming still coming is going to be super confusing for. Uh, a while, you know, people will email me and say, what, you know, what should I do? What should I do? And I say, I said, well, the first thing is never take medical advice from a freelance writer, but you know, the the whole thing is, Hey, at least you got them started. The whole thing is incredibly confusing. You know, (laughs) you know, I I said, you know, I'll I'll just repeat what the head of audiology at, um, uh, uh, at mass pioneer said, you know, start, cheap, start free and work your way up and see how you, how you do with hearing improvement. And when you find that you like it, go see an audiologist and, and take the next step. Uh, or if you don't like, it, if it doesn't help you, you know, think about something else. So I, I think there is this com- confusing period coming when there are going to be so many possibilities and you won't know which ones are frauds and which ones are not. Yeah. It'll, it'll be harder rather than easier for people. Uh, but, uh, at the same time, I think there are, you know, you know, awareness will improve, protect awareness of protection has improved. You know, it, it, I I don't think I've ever had a, uh, like a a building contractor over the age of 50, uh, come to my house who I didn't have to shout at because he's ruined his hearing (laughs) over the years. But now when you see young guys, when you see young people, uh, when you see even, you know, people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be protecting their hearing you know you see guys mowing lawns they'll have hearing protection True. uh it's i think it's much more just kind of in the air and then also there these there are uh there there are pharmaceutical uh interventions potentially coming along i have a, a friend of mine a college friend who has uh, tinnitus and he does not have the same personality 
profile that I do. He was completely incapable of ignoring his tinnitus. Mm. And he's now in a, in a trial of a, uh, it's a nasal spray. It's uh, oxytocin. And uh, he says it's completely, he uses it five times a day and he says it's completely eliminated his tinnitus. It doesn't work for everybody. I have another friend who got into that uh, trial and didn't have the same experience. Uh, the, the guy who was a co-inventor of Bose's earphones, who then became the head of audiology at uh, Mass Eye and Ear, right. is now working at uh, Frequency Therapeutics, which is a a startup outside of Boston that has a drug that's now, I think, in phase two trials right. that they've actually, it regenerates uh, hair cells from the support cell, supporting cells, and they have actually been able to measure uh, comprehension improvements in, uh, yeah. in, 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 and hearing is a, it's sort of a, it's a, it's good for ex- uh, experimentation because it's self-controlling. You can, treat one ear and not the other and then mm-hmm. you can test you know a subject That's in true. one ear and the other and so it's you don't even have to extrapolate from well maybe this person is different from that one you're just on two different sides of their head uh, and, and there's so many other i mean many of the people many of the uh researchers that i spoke to that i interviewed in connection when i was researching the book they also had sidelines going on where they were involved in startups that had you know, there were different kinds of uh, drug interventions. There's one that's interesting, which is a, a drug that would be protective uh, to say you you say you have to undergo chemotherapy and you're going to have a cisplatin or a, a, a chemotherapy drug that has known consequences. for It causes hearing loss in many of the people who receive it. If you had a drug that you could take before you took cisplatin that protected your hearing, protected your hair cells, that would be a tremendous thing. And so there are people working on that. I have a, a, a friend of mine who she had uh, extensive chemo for, uh, for breast cancer. And she, no one told her ahead of time that she was very possibly going to lose hearing. And, and so yeah. she went, she was surprised when she ended up with bilateral hearing aids. My fa- my brother, my son's father-in-law also from, uh, uh, from um, bladder cancer ended up with uh, hearing aids on both sides. And, in both those cases, if there had been a drug uh, that they could take first or alongside the chemotherapy, uh, they they might never have needed uh, hearing aids afterwards. Right. Yeah, that's um, that's definitely a not even a mixed bag, but that's a save your life or save your hearing. You know, and and it would be great right. if we no, had you both. Never, you would always make. Yeah. Right. You but, would always like, make the choice, but I think you'd probably like to know ahead of time that this is. So you can at least prepare yourself mentally for it and not think, you know, geez, you know, yep. I feel like I can't hear as well as I did before and have no idea why it might have happened. Well, many and hopefully at Mass Ear and uh, many large systems do have a audiological protocol. Um, I've been involved you know, yeah. as a clinician, you know, where someone who is receiving um, chemo um, does have regular every three or every six months a monitoring because there is a very specific presentation of that loss. Typically, it's super high frequency. Um, we're talking beyond mm-hmm. 8,000, which is typically the limits of, of diagnostic testing in your physician's office or audiologist's office. So, you know, you see a shift in 10, 12,000 hertz and, and you kind of take note and then follow that and the issue, and as you go into in your book about the basic hearing anatomy and sound, um, that those high frequencies are 
transposed at the entrance to the cochlea, right? So as they see that, it's like, okay, and it's typically, or just the progression, even of age-related hearing loss, it's going to pull those others down. So, so yeah, so there's protocols, yep. and they, um, that's, that's one of those, um, you know, medical care, uh, medical home, I guess, uh, <laughs> questions is this, this is something that should be on the forms that an individual receives that there is a chance of hearing loss manifesting and you will be on a protocol to monitor as you go through this treatment. It can also be, it might also be an example of something. If you are suddenly have a diagnosis of breast cancer, or bladder cancer, that may be the last thing you hear your doctor say, and everything that follows that could just right. be in, in the fog. Your your head is spinning, and uh, so the uh, yeah, it's anyway. Yep. As you say, no one would make you. No one would say, okay, I'm not going to treat this because I don't want to run a risk of of, of losing some hearing. Uh, but um, you know, it's you know, in the same way that people have seen with from COVID that uh, it all the uh, our all this, all the wiring in our brain is incredibly interconnected. And so you have people right. losing their sense of taste, losing their sense of smell mm -hmm. temporarily or otherwise. Uh, one of the things that amazed me, uh, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, which is the, the interplay between hearing and, and vision. Uh, and the, the thing that astonished me was the so-called McGurk effect, uh, which oh, yeah. one, I think it was a researcher at, at uh, Mass Ioneer, who told me to look it up. And it, it, here's a case where the the brain, what the what we see, our eyes override what we hear, even with an unambiguous sound that is clearly a sound, clearly heard. If the eyes see something different, the brain interprets it in a different way, and it doesn't. It works. It happens even if you know the trick. So it's it's like there is this. This is this a machine that's a lot more complicated than most of us give it credit for. And one you were mentioning too before how our ability to uh, focus in on sources of sound. And I right. remember, you know, when my kids were music music programs at school, and you think, how am I able to pick out the voice of my child from this chorus mm -hmm. and, by looking? And you know, and now if I at least feel that I can hear my child over the other people. Right. And I, it's the kind of thing, even if the sound is coming from a single source, so you're listening through it from through a public address system, the brain has this amazing ability to, uh, to basically tell the ears what they're hearing. And even if the, it's not exactly what the ears are hearing. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing when you look first at how small the cochlea is, right? Then you see how tiny these nerve connections are, and you see how everything is all wired together. You think, my God, you know, I don't dare step step outside the house. This is a <laughs> I'm walking around with this 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 um fragile contraption inside right. my head. I should, I you know I, I should have a helmet on or something, right? And we're geared. And, we are structured to communicate, right? And the, the, the conversation can be had about manual versus verbal communication, sign, oral, but we are geared to understand, to, to communicate as a species, right? We take in the visual cues as well as the verbal cue or is the, uh, I'm sorry, auditory cues. Um, you know, again, nonverbal, um, 
nonverbal cues, nonverbal language, um, nonverbals that can cause issues in communication, whether it's in your marriage or a friendship or whatever. There's a reason those are often, uh, you know, discussed and this individual needs to be aware of. But um, yeah, and and just to go back to you were saying about the McGurk effect. And uh, for folks, for our listeners, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes here. But uh, basically, yes, yeah, be an, sure to look it up. You'll drive your <laughs> yeah. It's it's basically an utterance of similar uh, phonemes, and so you would hear say "gaga gaga gaga" with a G. But your eyes, the way you're watching someone say it, and their mouth move. You watch it a second time, and it sounds like, even though the sound is the same, it sounds like da 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 with a D, and or ba 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 with a B. So, and this isn't the purple or white dress or purple or gold dress, whatever it was that went around right, right. the pink or white shoes, but it's a literal. It's it's the effects of the way your senses are taking it in in that moment, and which could be different in five minutes as you look at that. What's going on in your head? What you're thinking about? You know what what you're preoccupied with, and it's just subtle little differences in the way your brain puts that together. And again, to give you awareness to make you conscious of what the utterance is and it changes based on right. those. And, and it doesn't matter if you know, if you know about it, as the researcher said, he's been exactly. studying, you know, there's a guy who said, I've been studying it for 20 years or 30 years. And it's still, you know, it's, it's just, it's beyond your power. It's not, once you know the trick, it doesn't happen anymore. You, and, and it's amazing too. There's a, the video that I saw, they have a split screen where he's, uh, saying one thing on one side and saying the other thing on the other. And if you look back and forth between them, you know, he's saying the sound is the same, but you look back and forth between them and the sound changes as your eyes move from yeah. one to the other. It's, wow. it's the most astonishing thing. I'll have to check that yeah. one. Tell Jason, tell me about you. Jason, tell me about your, your own implants uh, and how, when, when were you implanted and tell me about your hearing history. Sure. So it was in my, I was diagnosed when I was 20 years old. I had no um, reason to suspect any hearing issues before that. What had happened is I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. And in my third year, I got a slot to go to jump school at Fort Fighting, Georgia. They send so many cadets as well as so many, um, well, ROTC cadets and then cadets from West Point and so forth during their, their, during their training. So, I failed the hearing test. Now I had a hearing screening getting in um, or to get qualified for the scholarship. And I passed that. But again, it's a screening. And the short answer to that is it's less frequencies in a very narrow range. They check, you know, more. So um, I was able to go and get my results verified, be evaluated by a private physician. And I did. And I failed the same way. Now it was a high frequency loss. Um, so it hadn't manifested any interpersonal challenges. I was a good student. I didn't have people telling me they thought that I couldn't hear and that, and that sort of thing. So fast forward, um, about three years and 
it started getting worse. And it seemed like it was getting worse every few months. I was at the time a dispatcher for a transportation company for FedEx. And I had my left ear. I was sitting in a corner and that was the ear I used for the phone. My right ear I used for the radio for the drivers coming in. And so this driver come in, you know, hey, Jason is bandit out of Lincoln, Illinois. You got a door for me? Yeah, sure. Take door 61. Okay. And in my other ear, my left ear, I had central dispatch coordinating loads. Well, all of a sudden, one night it seemed, all of a sudden, um, I couldn't hear as well uh, when I was talking to the, the excuse me, dispatcher on the left side. So I switched ears. Now I'm pretty much only using my right ear. Well, again, within seemed like a month or two, a few months, that right ear started going down too. Now, I guess I should say also, I did, this is pre-audiology for me. I was, you know, not, I had not gone to graduate school and so forth and done my graduate work, but I was still being responsible. I get my hearing checked, right? Getting it checked annually, had a crazy Irish Catholic mother. You gotta go, you gotta get this taken care of. And so I was on top of it, if you will. But during that year, I really, it, to use the words, it really went to profound um, hearing loss. And I was strictly, now, I'm in my early, mid-20s, okay? This is not the time, you want to talk about stigma, or you want to talk about as far as self-reflectance, you know? You <laughs> now I got to think about going around putting hearing aids on, I'm single, I'm, I'm, this is, this is life. I'm working hard. I'm working nights, but I spend all weekend, you know, I was living in Chicago, um, you know, going downtown, having a good time and going to Cubs games and all that. So, but I did get hearing aids and I did get them rather quickly after that. So within about, you know, three to six months of, of when that really severe loss, I mean, and again, there was a loss occurring all the time, but when it really crossed into that, Severe to profound area. Um, so this was 98, around 2000. So I limped along, to put it that way, with hearing aids for about four years. And um, during that time, I ended up getting married, had a little girl, got two kids now. But, you know, my daughter, she was under a year and... Um, my wife said, you know, maybe you should go. We had changed. I'm sorry. Let me back up. We had moved. We ended up in Connecticut. I was uh center manager for FedEx in New Haven. And uh, they said, my wife said, you know, maybe we should we get you established, you know, find an audiologist somewhere, get, get the hearing aids checked out, all that sort of thing. And um, a TV show, which you probably remember, Extreme Makeover, not the home edition, but when mm-hmm. they did the person. Um, they had a woman on there who was hearing impaired and part of her makeover, they got her new hearing aids. And so, you know, it was a receiver in the ear. I was wearing the larger ear mold tubing and so forth, which was a hundred percent appropriate, you know, because my loss was so severe. So I went to get checked out for that. And the audiologist said, after the testing and evaluation, she said, hold on one second. And she left the room. And apparently she went to go talk to you know, well, the director of audiology or the, the surgeon. It was a private practice in New Haven and um, came back and said, has anyone ever talked to you about cochlear implants? I had heard, yes, someone had given me a brochure 
back in like 98, 99. Hey, but you know, I got home from the appointment. I had to go to work that night and ended up on the counter with the junk mail and I never looked at it. And you know, this is pre not pre-internet, but pre-internet the way we know it now. So it wasn't like you just mm-hmm. Google, right? Right. Google yeah. cochlear implant and find out what, what it was. All I knew is it said something about drilling a hole in my head, which is not true, <laughs> but I thought, Oh man, no, nah, it ain't that bad. I got to I'll get, yeah, I, I just got to get better hearing aids. So, um, so that was 2004 earlier, 2004, maybe spring. And I was implanted in August. So, um, I was very fortunate and did very well, very quickly. Now, as you had mentioned, and you mentioned in, in your book, volume control here, it is different. Um, it is not a new language per se. It's not all beeps and chirps, but it is a different stimulation, if you will. Now, the implants we hear or they, they give us sound the way we receive sound after a point, meaning, and again, as you discussed very well and very clearly, um, the acoustic sound, air particles and so forth, come in, hit the eardrum, makes the little three little bones move in our ear that <laughs> pumps that energy into the cochlea. Now, the cochlea is fluid filled, so as that fluid moves around, the bathroom membrane moves, the quote, hair cells, the sensory cells then move or sheared to use a, that, 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 that the official term, but they move and that action causes the neurotransmitter to fire to the auditory nerve. And then boom, activation, auditory nerves got the information, goes up to the brain, brain, brain is where we understand. We're just getting the uh, information up the auditory nerve. So the cochlear implant just bypasses that first part the eardrum, the middle ear bones, and the fluid, and that electrode, the implant, is placed inside the cochlea, so it activates the um, auditory nerve directly electrically, the way that the information in our nervous system, we are electric, um, is is uh, received anyway by even normal hearing folks. So I had one implant for eight years, almost nine years. I did very well. Um, I was very fortunate. I felt like I had regained my hearing. Um, it's what brought me into audiology. I remember asking, I asked my audiologist, how can I do what you do? How can you, because these changes that she would make, again, was you know based on my test performance or based on just subjective input of of what I was, you know, things sounded too tinny. It sounded like this, and I just, it didn't sound natural. <laughs> right? Or, you know, um, things were a little bit too loud. I was picking up too much crackling paper. All these things, even folks with hearing loss and hearing aids that are listening right now, have experienced oh that drives me nuts when you you know the the pen clicking and the paper crackling is too much and it's not enough i still can't hear soft sounds and all this so all that is part of the cochlear implant programming session if you will right they want the impact uh, that that mm-hmm. feedback so um now again i was still in transportation and um 
that's I ended up in New York as regional manager just outside of uh, Middletown. We had our uh, facility there at uh, um, Thruway and 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 I eighty four outside Newburgh. So, but I was just becoming more and more fascinated with hearing science with the implant um, with just everything. And again, everything you've outlined in, in the book from the, the basic anatomy and physiology and, and the, and sound and psychoacoustics and what goes into sound transmission, all this. So I ended up taking a position with a regional carrier in Columbus, Ohio, and I had been doing volunteer with volunteering with cochlear Mm, Americas, which is the company that I'm implanted with. And so I started looking at something beyond transportation. I thought, you know, I, I need to do something more. I want to be more engaged in this field. And so I looked at some marketing positions and I had a business background, of course, general coming out of college and what I've been doing with FedEx. And so none of that, you know, materialized and that's fine. And just one day I, well, Actually, before I say that, I was also doing some subject. Uh, I was acting as a subject in some research for a cochlear implant researcher at Ohio State University and um, loved it. Loved it. doing a lot of sitting there, pushing buttons, listening to, you know, words like aba, aga, ada, afa, aka, and, you know, click on the constant I sound uh, that I heard and all that sort of thing. And so he asked me if I do some part-time research assistant stuff for him, which is basically data input into a spreadsheet. And <laughs> that's fine. I was just like, yeah, sure. I'm so interested in this. And uh, after about two or three months, I, I talked to some faculty and that I'd met in the department that he was in. That's where Brad Welling um, was uh-huh. prior to Harvard. I was up in, in his department, actually, at the Wexner Medical. It's now called the Wexner Medical Center, but uh, that's where I had met him. And I was with one of the researchers in that department. And so at the time, the field had already started shifting from a master's degree uh, to a doctorate, the AUD, kind of like an OD for optometry or DDS for doctor of dental surgery and so forth. So then I was doctor of audiology. So a lot of universities and programs were shifting to that four-year degree. And so a lot of audiologists, even though they could be grandfathered in, they were going back and, um, you know, continuing their education to get that uh, doctorate degree, to get that uh, clinical doctorate. So talked to some faculty, came home, had a discussion with my wife, said, hey, we can do this. Quit my job, enrolled. Was accepted, thankfully. It's the only place I applied. If I didn't get in, uh, I'd still be looking for another way, <laughs> I guess. But um, And so then during my fourth year of the program, I was bilaterally implanted. And the main reason was because I, I just learned more, right? You, you learn more about what you could be missing, how bilateral hearing, and this is a, a different episode for the podcast, if you will, but the benefits of that, hearing with two ears. Um, so I was implanted and it was phenomenal. It was, I didn't realize I was missing as much as I guess I was. So, um, your story is tremendous. It's great. And, uh, Brad Welling said to me that the, uh, cochlear implant is the, you know, the greatest, uh, uh, prosthetic device for, a, for a sense of, of ever. Uh, and it's tremendous. And I want the, one of the things that's, it's interesting to me, uh, the w- one thing I learned about 
when I was working on my book is the, is the whole, the tension between uh, so-called capital D deaf culture and, uh, and lowercase d. It's a, um, not everybody has the same experience that you've had with, with implants, but it's, it's, it's just, it's a remarkable thing to be able to, um, you know, to go from being, you know, profoundly deaf, beyond profoundly deaf to be able uh, to do a podcast. Well, and, and so a couple things, the etiology, what caused it in me is not ever been specified however everything points to it being an autoimmune issue okay Mm -hmm. so i had german measles when i was rubella when i was like 18 months old now this is 1974 so we weren't doing the mmr vaccine yet but it wasn't a bad bout um you know it was not bad at all however apparently um be antigen or stays in your system much like chicken pox and shingles so they think okay that may have contributed at the same time when my hearing loss was diagnosed now this is not cause and effect but i had a couple bouts of mono Mm -hmm. again not causing the hearing loss but there was some autoimmune deficit going on and again it wasn't bedridden for six weeks it was just uh you know you go through the day by 11 o'clock 1 p.m you're just tanked you want to go back to the room and go to sleep so so that for the etiology so but one thing and the biggest thing or let me say a couple things with cochlear implants and success for one thing wildly successful and like you said dr welling had had mentioned this is you know it's heralded as a modern day miracle you know um and and they are wildly successful. Now, again, we hear about, you know, 80% of your time is spent with 20% of the patients that don't do as well as they would like or things like that. There is a lot of self self um, moderation of a lot, of, a lot of stuff that the individual must do. You know, you can take the medication, but if you don't eat better or stay off that leg or put the ice on it or raise it, you're not going to get better. So things, there are things with cochlear implantation the individual needs to do to optimize outcomes. As far as the language and as far as you said, you know, as far as my speech and that sort of thing, that is definitely a prelingual, postlingual difference, mm-hmm. right? Individuals who did not have normal speech and language development, which occurs Really between, well, not between, I should say, up to about three to five years of age, the majority, it's taken care of. There's still some phonemic information or efficiency, like saying your R's, saying your L's, that can still, you know, take a couple years for a kid. Some some kids, you know, people are different. and But the majority of that speech and language development is, you know, between three and five years of age. And then the amount of time you've had normal hearing right my i mean by the time i was in my late teens my my accent you know is pretty much the way it is my language is pretty much the way it is and so forth so to have that already that the 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 chances or any effect on my speech are minimal if any Mm -hmm. it's and and then after you know there may be and there may be and i say that one thing with hearing impaired individuals, they may lose, especially with severe hearing impairment, they lose the ability to hear those high frequency consonants, to put it so technically, the S's, the K's, T's, 
uh, voiceless, you know, k, t, p, all those sorts of sounds. So, so they don't notice the errors they make in speech and correct mm-hmm. it. Okay. So, so there's that. Finally, and this is well established in the research, the biggest um, predictor or I guess contributor to good outcomes to optimal outcomes with cochlear implantation and with hearing aids, with hearing um, treatments through devices and through the reintroduction of, um, you know, frequency specific gain and appropriate amounts is duration of deafness. Let's call it deafness, duration of impairment. So somebody who's only had a severe and not just severe, but, um, you know, beyond a mild degree of hearing impairment, the shorter period of time that they have, the better they're going to do once hearing aids are introduced, a cochlear implant's introduced, and so forth. So somebody who lost it started losing it due to, again, autoimmune or, um, you know, maybe even like you discussed earlier, a chemo situation where it had progressed, you know, over the course of like two, two to three years. If that person was an implant candidate um, and was implanted, they're going to do, or I should say, you know, everything points to them doing much better, much more quickly, having much better outcomes than someone who has been hearing impaired or has been losing their hearing over the course of 30 years and never mm-hmm. done anything about it. They never wore hearing aids. And again, it's not the hearing aid. They've never forced their brain to have to compensate, right? To, mm-hmm. to, to communicate, to take in. And that's where the listening fatigue argument comes in because there's a lot. It takes a lot of mental resources to listen. We don't think about that. Um, it's a huge factor in hearing impaired kids, even if they have um, hearing aids or implants and their outcomes are good, they're still going to be a lot more tired at the end of the school day than their normal hearing peers. So anyway, so the duration of that is a huge, is the biggest contributing factor. And again, well-established in research. So yeah, if you have a 70 year old who gets implanted, who's been losing their hearing progressively since their early 40s, never wore hearing aids. All they did is just kind of, you know, taking a step back. Yeah, I hear what I need to hear, you know. Um, and then they get implanted. Ah, oh, I hate the way this sounds. I got to take it off. That too, with implants, you got to have the activation. It's got to be on because you're literally electrically stimulating that nerve. Hearing aids, same thing. You know, you take them off, you're not allowing the ear to get that better, to get that that, that improved um, acoustic information, you know. So so those are the big contributing, biggest contributing factors. Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we should not do, people who can hear should not do what I know. People say, well, you know, I screw up my hearing, I'll, you know, I'll get implanted later. It's a, no. you know, it's a chore. What you do is, it's hard work. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's miraculous that there is, uh, that it exists, but it's not, uh, it's not like getting glasses. Right. Um, right. And I guess so, that's the big theme too, is, is, is there is so much more to go into it. However, it's not insurmountable. It is an awareness or I guess a, a better understanding, um, issue with you know 
you don't put the hearing aids in like glasses and then you hear perfectly, that sort of thing. So it's really the way that, as I referenced earlier, framing the, I guess, application of the knowledge or the way the knowledge is best consumed by the public and and how they need it and to just make it a part of that cultural fabric, you know, that Mm -hmm. we can not prioritize per se hearing healthcare above anything else, any other awareness, be it, you know, responsibility to the environment, be it responsibility to ourselves, be it eyesight, be it uh, any other medical um, issues and, you know, whether it's diabetes or whether it's, um, you know, lifestyle driven, um, medical challenges that folks have that we have now in 2021, but it's definitely something to improve the way it's discussed and thought about so that we can improve or we can make it of greater importance, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. And, uh, it's so true what you said too, the, um, you know, not ignoring it because it has these consequences. They creep up, uh, people who become isolated from, you know, social engagement. You start avoiding situations where you, you can't hear. And the, uh, a thing that struck me, uh, I, um, the woman who was, uh, whose, uh, uh, implant appointment I went to, she said that her mother had had uh, hearing loss similar to hers, and that although on her mother's death certificate it said Alzheimer's disease, she was sure that what killed her was actually hearing loss. That as oh, she wow. became withdrawn from from other people, her world shrank to the point where it's just that was what did her in. And I see, I saw that in my grandmother too. Now that I think back on it, you know, she she lived to be ninety five, but the last uh, 12, 13 years of of that of the of the 12 or 13 of those years she was in bed she was she was yeah. like took to her bed in the old-fashioned way and it had to be partly hearing because she couldn't um uh, maybe even mostly hearing she had any number of ailments but it, her world shrank and the so you know you want to get on it and as you say get on it when uh there's still your brain still rem- remembers enough sure. about perfect hearing to recreate it with yeah. these these tools these tools that we have yeah, that's that's definitely, I mean, again, the psychological piece with the dementia or Alzheimer's and similar to what you're talking about, autism and how um, it is, it presents so similarly, you know, um, right. or I not, not that autism presents similar to dementia, not at all. I mean, that behavioral issues can often present due to hearing loss, right, as well as due to maybe an autistic uh, uh, child or, you know, someone with on that on that spectrum. Same thing with the, your dementia and Alzheimer's um, presentation. Okay, it's not that they're forgetful or they're not paying attention or they're often, you know, their mind's off in another place. No, they're just not engaged. They're not hearing you. And so, therefore, they don't care. I don't need to hear that. They're not talking to me. If they want me, they'll come and let me know. And, again, that's where a lot of communication strategies can can really be employed to to help those individuals as well as, you know, like I said, the, the, their family and friends, understanding that this is something we can do something about right now. Right. And it's not just that those individuals act differently. Their family and friends treat them differently as oh, exactly. you know, it's just as the, the communication becomes more difficult. It's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, 
It's interesting, too. One of the things that I was interested in talking to the people at the American School for the Deaf, uh, historically, they, you know, it was deaf kids came to the American School for the Deaf. Right. The push to mainstream kids with uh, with difficulties of all kinds has meant that uh, very often kids who have hearing problems from birth from very early on are mainstreamed in ordinary public schools. Yep. They'll have uh, AIDS and they by they have trouble. It's hard if you especially as for the 90 or 90 percent of of deaf kids who are born to hearing parents have no exposure to sign language when they're young have uh they are i think it would it surprises most hearing people i think to be told you know if you're uh, for a child born deaf it is a disadvantage to be born into to hearing parents because they don't know how they can't communicate with you and it surprises them also to be told that you know the uh when you see a, a sign language interpreter on tv most often that is a hearing child of deaf parents whose first exposure to language That's was true. sign language and for whom English was a second language. That's true. So that you talked earlier about the window of this window in which we learn language. If you are in a world of silence during that window and are being uh, and are placed in a school with hearing children without the support of sign language or right. whatever, you're, you're you 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 miss that window and what the the director of uh american school for the deaf says you know they used to those kids that used to be the kids who would come there they would learn sign language maybe they would you know or get devices and then they would go to regular school and they would do well because mm -hmm. they had this they had learned to communicate when they could communicate when they were their brains were ready for it now he said they most of their student body is kids for whom Hearing loss is a secondary difficulty. It's kids who, you know, with autism, with some other problem that made schools say, we cannot handle this kid. You take them. Wow. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, I think if you're, you tend to think of, yes, let's put, let's eliminate the stigma of hearing loss and put these kids in classes with hearing children uh, in, in normal public school classes. But if they need, you know, they need help that they they should be getting when they're very young. We, as he said, we should be doing it. The, we should flip it. They should get their hearing. They should get the deaf school education first, and then be mainstreamed, rather than the way he said it often happens, where sure. they put in. They're mainstreamed in public schools up until like they're fourteen, and then they come to school for the deaf, and then it's much harder to bring them up to to speed. Oh, sure, and and that. That language piece is, again, it has been referenced in the literature. It is the same for learning sign. Optimally, you know, the earlier you can introduce these things, the brain's wiring is uh, similar. You know, you are, right. you, are, you are defining a mode of communication, you know. So, right. It's a language. It's a, it's a real language. Sign language is. And I wish that, you know, I said this in the book, that I wish that instead of all the years that I spent futilely trying to learn French in school, I wish I'd been learning American Sign Language because it would be so much more useful now that, you know, when many of my golf buddies are beginning to have hearing problems or, you know, oh, the sure. old ladies that I play bridge with, it would be, it would be handy. And it was amazing. One of the, my favorite things uh, that I learned when I was working on the book was about the deaf population on Martha's Vineyard, in the town where my wife and I yeah. go every summer, Shilmark, yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah. 
in the for a couple of centuries there was a very the a very high concentration of of hearing impaired people right. genetically you know uh, like four percent of the population of Chilmark, twenty five percent of the population of Squibnocket, which is like a town within Chilmark. Right. And just as every family had some connection to deafness, and as a consequence that everybody used sign language, and the, there were often times when uh, hearing people used sign language even among themselves because right. it's useful. You know, you can talk in church, you can tell a dirty joke in front of other people and, sure. and say things about people who can't. <laughs> and there was interesting that there's this woman who wrote about them was talking to old timers from that era and they would tell a story and wouldn't necessarily remember who had been able to hear and who had not. And there was a woman who has said, you know, I had a, you know, this, I was, this woman and I were yelling at each other about something. And then she stopped and she said, uh, come to think of it, we were probably yelling at each other in sign language because the, the, but in yeah. the, even in their memories, that difference was gone. And it's, and it's the thing that struck me was how much, you know, we treat, you know, handicaps are social constructs in, as much as they are physical disabilities. So here was a place where nothing special was done uh, for the deaf. The deaf were excluded from no activities that hearing people did. Uh, they, but they were everybody, just as a matter of course, learned sign language. And so there were these two ways of communicating, and people didn't even necessarily remember who needed what. And it's there were people from Chilmark who later they go to the mainland. It was a very isolated community. They went later and they were surprised that there weren't as many deaf people everywhere as there were yeah, where wow. they had grown up. And, and what we, what we now call American sign language uh, is, was heavily influenced by the sign language that was used in Showmark because a bunch of the first students at the American school for the deaf came from there. They came from the Island wow. uh, and the way they communicated influenced the, the formation of, of uh, American sign language, and this is uh, although there's no record of their sign language because wow. you know there's no written record of sign language. YouTube is really now the equivalent of you know the re we can preserve uh, uh, sign language in the way that we preserve written language only on video, really. And uh, you know there have been some efforts to do it graphically, but it's really YouTube that's made it possible. So yeah. it's. Uh, it's 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 fascinating. Uh, you know, there was a story about a there was a visiting preacher at a church, and he was he he was bothered because a woman sitting in the front pew, she was looked like she was fiddling with her hands through the the, the whole sermon. Yeah. And it turned out she was she was signing for her husband who was sitting oh. next to her, couldn't hear, and she had a sort of a compact version that she could do in her lap, and he was yeah. just w watching her hands in his lap. So it's, wow. very it's it's fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, this has been great, David. I greatly appreciate Jason, your time. Jason, thank you. This is this is phenomenal. Um, folks, the book is Volume Control by David Owen. We'll have the link to the show notes, or I'm sorry, we'll have the links and uh, associated for articles and everything about David in the show notes. Uh, we appreciate you so much, David. Um, I really... I think I want to be reaching out to you again sometime. Have you back on. We'll have some more discussion because you have a wealth of information. You have a wealth of, of just knowledge that you've gained through your own experiences as, as well as what you've put together for your work. So uh, I really appreciate it.
Good. Let's do it. I enjoyed it. Jason, thank you. And good luck in your practice. Thanks. I appreciate it. Great. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. There you have it, folks. David Owen. Check out the show notes for his bio and where to get any of his books, including Volume Control. And if you like what we're doing here, hit subscribe and leave us a rating. We appreciate you. And remember, continue living life aloud. Edited by me, music by Lauren Zettler. Until next time. <laughs>